1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: It sounded more like a meeting of grammarians or English teachers rather than oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Here are Justices Neil Gorsuch, Elena Kagan, and Chief Justice John Roberts.
3: On what basis is this sentence grammatical? I, I think you, it's so awkward I'd anticipate you'd rewrite it if it were given to you. Um, and... Uh, when we look at the adverbial phrase, there's nothing to indicate in the statute that it that it modifies only one of the verbs.
1: The read-in that you're asking us to adopt is, in fact, ungrammatical, uh, that you have two verbs, store and produce. They have a shared direct object, numbers to be called, and uh, then a modifier following all of that.
3: I mean, the drafters here weren't following... Uh, the rule of redondo, singular, singulus or diagramming these sentences. So why why should we focus on on syntax to the extent that I think uh, both parties do?
2: At issue is a lawsuit accusing Facebook of repeatedly sending unwanted text messages, and the justices struggle to make sense of the law banning robocalls and Robotext to cell phones. The 1991 Telephone Consumer Protection Act that was enacted long before Facebook existed or cell phones were so pervasive in our society, with some justices like Clarence Thomas suggesting the law is obsolete.
1: Don't you think it's rather odd that we are applying a statute that's almost anachronistic, if not vestigial, and to to, to modern technology like Facebook and instant messaging?
2: Joining me is litigator Paul Haringa, counsel at Manette. Paul, tell us about the basic issue facing the justices.
4: Well, the issue boils down to the placement of a comma, to put it in the simplest term. In the Telephone Consumer Protection Act of the CCPA, there's a the definition of an automatic telephone dialing system, and it's defined as equipment which has the capacity to store or produce telephone numbers to be called comma using a random or sequential number generator and to dial such numbers. And the issue is whether that comma, the random or sequential number generator, relates to the word store or also modifies the word produce.
2: So we have a grammatical debate. Is it going to be purely a grammatical question for the justices? Well,
4: it's difficult to predict how the Supreme Court is ever going to come out on any particular issue. I don't know necessarily if it's going to come down to a grammatical issue. One of the fundamental tenets of statutory construction is to come up with the plain meaning, you know, to look at comma placement and things like that when things get a little bit more complex and not necessarily look into the statutory history. But when you look at the statute, because the way it's worded, they may look at the plain meaning they may look at you know the legislative history and there were some indications that they're going to consider i don't think necessarily supreme court's going to do this but you know whether the statute just obsolete based on current technology so there's a lot of factors i think they're come into and i don't think it's really going to come down in the end to whether that comma is in the right place
1: there
2: are a lot of textualists on the court will that make a difference
4: Yes, to a degree. I think that that's what the focus has been on. The circuit courts that have dealt with it have really focused on the textual language and how it's constructed. So there's a possibility that's going to play a factor. How heavy of a factor? I'm not sure. Everyone seems to agree on the courts that quote-unquote robocalls, as they're more commonly called, are problematic. So I think that they may be also looking at bigger pictures and not just focusing on the text at the end of the day.
2: Was there any consideration made to privacy concerns of people getting these texts?
4: Yes, there was some consideration. I mean, the chief justice definitely brought it up. Justice Kavanaugh brought it up. Um, But they weren't really focusing on the arguments didn't really focus on on the privacy aspect, I and mean, the plaintiffs did, that You know, this is a, a huge privacy concern and things like that. But my impression was it wasn't really the, the primary focus of the argument.
2: Let's go back for a second and just describe what the case is about.
4: Sure. Well, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, basically, it, there's a civil provision that allows for $500 per call that is made without consent using uh, an E-T-D-S, uh, more commonly an auto dialer or an automatic telephone dialing system. Uh, the plaintiff, do good, is alleged to have received text messages, not traditional phone calls. Text messages are, within the scope of the TCPA, widely considered, although, interestingly enough, Justice Thomas questioned that issue. But really, the issue boils down to consent. Did the plaintiff receive these text messages from Facebook? without his consent, using an automatic telephone dialing system. Under the TCPA, there are statutory damages at 500 per call or text message, and that's what's alleged here, that he didn't consent to receiving the call, in this case text messages, and therefore is entitled to statutory damages.
2: I've been talking to Paul Haringa, counsel at Manat, about the Supreme Court arguments in a lawsuit accusing Facebook of repeatedly sending unwanted text messages The justices struggled to make sense of the 1991 Telephone Consumer Protection Act that was enacted long before Facebook existed or cell phones were so pervasive in our society. And some of the justices expressed concern about whether a broad interpretation of the law would put all cell phone users at risk of being sued. Here are justices Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, and Neil Gorsuch.
5: Counsel, if we rule your way, the logical consequence is that every cell phone owner would be subject to the harsh criminal and civil penalties of the CPA um, could you give me a reason other than that it hasn't happened yet for, uh, for why Congress would have intended that
3: If we take your friend your opponent definition Uh, then it would be unlawful uh, for a person to use a cell phone, I guess, that stores numbers, like an emergency hospital number, uh, to make a call uh, to the emergency line of the hospital. Um, But even at the time of the statute's adoption, uh, there were phones that captured uh, numbers that had been dialed, and you could press redial. Um, why wouldn't, and that was common even even the 1990s, I believe, um, certainly a lot earlier than cell phones. Why wouldn't this uh, statute make a, a criminal of us all?
2: Do you think that some of the justices' concerns that the plaintiff's interpretation of the statute would put average cell phone users at risk of being sued, is that plausible or beyond plausibility?
4: I don't think it's necessarily way out there. That's something that has been a concern since day one. Um, This case stems from a Ninth Circuit decision that basically said that it's just storing and dialing numbers. Whether a random or sequential number generator is used is secondary. If that happened, of course, it's an auto dialer, but to store numbers and to dial them automatically, well, that's what a cell phone does. I mean, my iPhone can text everybody in my address book automatically in one shot, I type the text message and send it out. It's a possibility. Whether that would actually be a practical application, that's what's questionable. Yes, the way you read the statute, I would think that a cell phone would be, if it is given the plaintiff's very broad definition as advocated in oral argument, that a cell phone could be within the scope. I'd really be skeptical whether a jury or a judge would apply it that way, because the word automatic is not in it, but there's some question of the amount of human intervention involved to dial such numbers. And, you know, there's a fair amount of human intervention on your cell phone. You have to, you know, type it in, you have to select the addresses, it's not doing an automatic reply. But at the same time, Justice Barrett brought up the great example, I thought, of the automatic reply. If I'm driving and it sends a text message, you know, just automatic based on on a setting on my phone that says, hey, I'm driving, I I can't be disturbed right now. Is that automatic? Is that enough to to be a TCPA violation? And my question is, well, is it marketed? Because when it comes down to it, the type of consent that you need varies based on the, the subject matter and I'm just not convinced that a a jury necessarily would apply it that way, but it is possible that it would fall within the scope.
2: It did seem like several of the justices were leaning toward Facebook's interpretation. Justice Breyer even told Facebook's lawyer that he had a pretty strong case on the consequences and purposes of the law. You know,
4: again, it's difficult to, 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 I don't think there's necessarily going to be a split. Um, uh, you know, where it's, it's going to come down five four, but maybe if it's uh, an opinion, it's a close call. I mean, you know, the bar opinion wasn't that close of a call. And yet, when I listened to that oral argument as well, um, very closely, because it was a big threshold issue of whether the entire auto provision was also going to be declared unconstitutional, um, you know, the, the arguments, some of the justices surprised me. And, and you know, they were leaning one way in, in oral arguments and they came out a different way in in when they actually wrote the opinion. And sometimes I get the impression, I have been listened to countless of these, that, you know, they kind of play devil's advocate sometimes uh-huh. during questioning and they're gonna come out the opposite way. Sometimes they're right on where you already know where they're gonna come out. I think that it's still a jump ball It's a close call. I think that Facebook at the end of the day has the better logical common sense argument. And because this is a fairly complex issue, you know, at the end of the day when it's a close call, I think the plain reading of it. And the way it even reads to me is that the Facebook version of it is, is the correct one. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. If you store numbers and dial such numbers, my cell phone is an auto dialer. I do not think that that's what the TCPA is intended for, but I could be wrong.
2: You mentioned the bar case. The court had deferred action on this case until it heard that other robocall case. From the opinion that was issued in the last case, Do you see any implications for this case?
4: Well, the one implication I think that is clear is that the, that they're not going to, uh, you know, strike down the entire auto dialer provision because of it. I mean, they were very reluctant to do that. And, you know, there were comments. I think Kavanaugh was the one who made it clear, but also um, this time around, also Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, that said, look, that, you know, these calls are a problem. And, you know, that's true to the extent that someone's, you know, not getting consent or, you know, truly, you know, violating the law. Um, nobody's a fan of that. I think that's the one takeaway that you can definitely have is that I don't think the TCPA is going anywhere. There was discussion about how, well, it's still going to stand, even if we take out the auto dollar part, so you still have pre-recorded calls and artificial voice calls. And are those the true quote unquote robocalls? calls? I think that that is a very good argument and a very good point, is that if there's human intervention involved, the number's not random or sequential, as long as there's a live person, that's not a robocall. It's those pre-recorded voice that you get and and that you hear without your consent are the ones that are truly the annoying and truly the ones that the justices seem to have problems with. So I would think that the TCPA is not going anywhere, but whether the auto dollar provision is going to stick, that's the harder one. But at the end of the day, what will still be prohibited are calls without consent that are using an artificial pre-recorded voice. What an auto-dialer is, it'll still be there too. But is the auto-dialer going to be storing and dialing numbers, or is it also going to involve a random or sequential number generator? That's the question that the court has to answer.
2: Thanks, Paul. That's Paul Haringa of Manette.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline.
2: There's a new consequence, perhaps so far unconsidered, for getting COVID-19. You may not be able to get life insurance. Life insurance companies are already rejecting people who have survived COVID, even those with mild symptoms. And some companies are changing their forms to specifically ask applicants if they've had COVID. Joining me is Lydia Wheeler, a senior reporter at Bloomberg Law. When did insurance companies first start considering whether to sell new life insurance policies to people who survived COVID?
5: Right. So the pandemic was barely underway when life insurance companies started wrestling with this question of whether or not that they should sell new policies to people who have survived the virus. The Delaware Department of Insurance uh, told me that they actually start seeing it in June. Um, Companies were filing requests to change their application forms to specifically ask people if they've had the virus, if they've been treated for it, if they've been hospitalized, those sorts of things is it
2: legal for an insurance company to refuse to give someone a life insurance policy because they've had COVID?
5: Right. So there's no state regulation that stops them from underwriting against a disease like COVID-19. That being said, though, insurers can't you know, they're not allowed to add riders to their policies that would deny someone a payout of benefits if they died um, from a specific illness. You know, they can't offer you a policy that has, you know, a clause in it that says, if you die from COVID, we're not going to pay you. Um, but they can refuse you a policy, you know, at the outset um, because you already had this pre existing condition.
2: So tell us about this couple you spoke to who were refused life insurance.
5: Right. So I talked to an intellectual uh, property attorney in Stratford, Connecticut. Um, Her and her wife were both denied coverage. Um, They were seeking, you know, life insurance policies because theirs were set to expire and they were wanted to expand on the plans that they already had. They started this process, I think they said, in February. Um, So before yeah, so before the um, pandemic was really underway in the United States, um, and they, uh, you know, started the application process, and then they went on a trip to Aruba, as, which was planned, and um, on their way back through the airports, they think that's where they both contracted the virus. Um, they both tested positive within hours of each other uh, and then within a couple of weeks of getting that those positive test results back, they were denied life insurance policies by Sumetra Life Insurance Company. And what's interesting here is that Sumetra actually sent um, one of them a, le- a letter and in the denial letter, they specifically said we're denying you due to your medical history, which includes your recent COVID diagnosis so then there's no way to appeal that. Well, they could go back to the insurance company. I mean, they could wait a couple months and go back to the insurance company and, and try again. Um, that's what some insurers have are saying that they're recommending their clients do. They could also shop around and go to a different company. Um, some insurance experts say that just because you're denied by one doesn't mean that you're you're going to be denied by them all. Um, so that's important to shop around for coverage. Um, but, you know, there's no way, you know, after Symmetra makes their decision, you know, kind of their hands are tied. You know, that's what Symmetra has decided and, you know, insurance companies have a lot of control in this situation.
2: In the requests that are being made, you know, to change the applications, do they want to change it to just ask questions, have you had COVID or are there more subtle questions that they're asking?
5: Right, so some of them actually said if you've had a positive diagnosis, but you have to keep in mind that not everybody who has had COVID has actually gone and gotten tested just because the, you know, there's still an issue with testing in the United States. Um, It's hard to go and find a test and be able to get tested. Um, So the application forms are are asking questions like, have you been treated for symptoms of a sore throat or runny nose, fatigue, Um, those things, like the stuff that are the symptoms of COVID. Uh, They actually ask if you've been hospitalized or, and if so, for how long? And in some cases, they're asking if you've traveled and when was the last time you went out of the country, Um, you know, and they're also asking if you've been advised by a medical professional to quarantine for a certain number of days and if you've been exposed to the virus.
2: Are there any metrics that insurance companies can use to figure out who might be affected by COVID long term or are they just sort of in the dark? And that's why some are doing this all or nothing.
5: That's right. So, you know, insurance companies are really in the dark here. Um, They rely on mortality data when deciding whether to insure someone or not. And there's still a lot we don't know about COVID-19. You know, some people, even those who who were asymptomatic or maybe just had a mild case, have shown that they have um, damage to their heart, their lung, their kidneys. Um, And it's not clear yet you know, from medical professionals, if that damage is going to be long-term. So insurance companies really don't know if you've had COVID-19, what your mortality risk looks like. And that's, you know, they need that data in order to to figure out whether or not that you're someone who's worth insuring or not. Um, and so without that data, they're kind of left guessing. And the trouble with guessing is that they could get it wrong and they could deny someone a policy uh, who, you know, has a long life ahead of them, um, or they could, give someone a policy uh, who dies relatively early in life, um, and then they may be forced to pay out, you know, a lot of claims 20 to 30 years down the road.
2: So, Lydia, some people get very mild forms of COVID. Some are even asymptomatic, while others are hospitalized. Are insurance companies basing coverage on the severity of someone's COVID symptoms?
5: I mean, possibly, uh, you know, that's why they're asking specific questions like, have you been hospitalized? Have you not? Um, You know, one insurance company uh, told me that, you know, they are looking at the severity of the case that they, uh, of the severity of the disease that you had, Um, you know, but it's nobody knows really yet, you know, kind of, like I said, even if you have an asymptomatic case, you know, you could still have long-term damage. Um, you know, insurance companies are telling me that this is not an automatic disqualifier. Um, but then again, you know, we are seeing people denied coverage. So, um, you know, insurers are are recommending that, you know, if you had COVID-19, maybe, you know, wait a couple months um, before you apply for a policy uh, that has um, seen some people have seen success that way. Um You know, it turns out that if, you know, you had COVID-19 and you are um, approved of a policy, you might end up having to pay more for a skimpier plan.
2: You talked to someone who said this is a classic insurance reaction, that this happened after AIDS and SARS. Tell us what the insurance companies did after AIDS and SARS and whether we still see any of that in the policy applications.
5: Right. So my, my sources are telling me that, and, you know, insurance companies are scared here, um, and that they reacted similarly, like you said, after the AIDS epidemic in the eighties and the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. Um, the difference here, though, uh, between AIDS and COVID-19 is insurers, um, saw AIDS as a sure death sentence. And that's not necessarily the case with COVID-19. Like I said, there's still this lack of, of mortality, um, you know, data. So they're not really uh, sure what the future looks like. Um, you know, and now that we have a vaccine, um, you know, this problem might resolve itself in a couple months if the vaccine is proven effective uh, at stopping the virus and protecting people. Um, so, you know, we might not see as many denials come with COVID-19 as we did with AIDS. But similar things happened um, with those two, uh, you know, diseases where insurance companies started asking specific questions on their application form.
2: Could a state pass a regulation to stop insurance companies from considering COVID at all?
5: I'm not sure on that one, if states have the power to do that. Potentially, um, there are some states that have um, already put out guidance to say, hey, insurers, don't do this. Um, The Connecticut Insurance Department was one at the very early at the start of the pandemic. And um, they put out guidance that said, don't ask about COVID-19 on your application forms. Um, and so far, uh, you know, they've gotten some complaints of some companies who have tried to and, you know, after being contacted by the insurance department saying you're in violation of this guidance that we put out, you know, the insurance company stopped doing that. Um, so it's, it's entirely possible that a state could step in. Um, there is such a thing such uh, called the insurance compact, which regulates it regulates insurance companies in 44 states um, and so that they could decide to put out guidance that says, you know, you can do this and you can't do that. And they already have um, put out some guidance on the pandemic uh, and how insurance companies should respond to it.
2: Tell us about the guidance that they put out at the start of the pandemic.
5: Right, so they uh, they put out guidance at the start of the pandemic, basically saying, you know, insurance companies aren't allowed to add these riders to their policies that deny someone a payout of benefits. Um, they said that you can't ask just, you know, generic questions like, have you had symptoms of COVID, that there actually has to be a specific diagnosis from a medical professional that goes with it um, before, you know, when when you're asking questions on your application form.
2: For someone who hasn't gone through it, explain the sort of process of getting life insurance. It's not as easy as just signing up or even filling out an application
0: form.
5: That's right. Um, applying for life insurance is actually a pretty involved process. You know, some people might have to go through a medical exam and you have to answer, um, you know, a, a litany of questions about your medical history and you have to provide, you know, access to your medical records through your doctor. Um, and so for that reason, you know, uh, life insurance experts, um, are advising people not to lie on their application forms because if it is found that you had COVID-19 and you knew about it and you lied to the insurance company when you applied for a policy, they can come back later and deny you a payout of the benefits that you're owed.
2: We know that with Obamacare, that insurance companies can't deny insurance to someone with pre-existing conditions. Could Congress pass a law doing the same for life insurance?
5: Potentially, that's right. So, Obamacare, and and that's where I think a lot of people, um, there's been some confusion. And um, you know, Obamacare is has that clause in it that protects you if you have a pre-existing condition. That says that health insurance companies can't deny you, um, just for you know having a prior you know di- disease or medical medical condition, which now includes COVID-19. But there's nothing like that right now on the books for life insurance companies. And so that's why they have this power to deny you a plan. Um, And so it's entirely possible that Congress could take action here.
2: Are any of the companies weighing denying people life insurance who have COVID and as those numbers go up and losing the money they get from people who are paying for life insurance?
5: Right. I think that's definitely, you know, a, a risk that they take, you know, in denying plans. They could be missing out on, you know, revenue um, that could be from, you know, from selling these insurance policies. You know, insurers keep telling me like, you know, hey, we're still businesses. We we want to make money. We still want to offer, you know, people insurance policies in good times and in bad. Um, So they're really trying to make these hard decisions about, you know, whether to, to deny or grant policies.
2: What's the best advice you've heard from the experts about what to do if you've been turned down for life insurance because of COVID?
5: Uh, experts are definitely saying shop around, um, that you should go even before you start the application process, actually, that you should start and get multiple quotes from different companies um, and look at the type of coverage that's being offered. Um, and then even if you've been denied to go and and. And try somewhere else. There are a lot of insurance companies in the marketplace. Um, and, you know, some experts say that, you know, if you if you had COVID-19 and you survived and you have no lingering symptoms, that you should have a wide open marketplace. But I think it remains to be seen how true that is.
2: Thanks for being on the show, Lydia. That's Lydia Wheeler, Bloomberg Law Senior Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.